Good afternoon. Before I get started, I'd like to introduce uh, the team we have here because all of them are an important part of the story you're going to hear. Uh, more important than that, many of them will be vitally important to the story we have yet to write about HBM Holdings. So I'm going to start with Chris Haffenreffer from the class of 11. Uh, Micah Dawson was a 2012 hire. He is firmly implanted in one of our portfolio companies, so he's not here today. Uh, Carlos Correa from the class of 2014. Uh, I need to take this time. Um, this is a combination of uh, showing appreciation and passing blame. Um, <laughs> Carlos worked tirelessly on taking some materials that I've used other places and pulling it together into this new software package that I've never test-driven. So uh, it's, it's going to be a fun adventure for all of us today. But Carlos, thank you very much. He put an amazing amount of hours into pulling this together for me. Uh, and Simon Brugo here from the class of 2015. Uh, we also, uh, Darden's not the only place we recruit. Uh, so we have a couple of Olin MBAs here. Dan Susi is there. And Patrick Harden, uh, they're both class of 2015. More importantly, and, and this is really a very big deal to me, Patrick is our first internal transfer from one of our companies, from Mississippi Lime, into HBM Holdings. We think it's really vitally important that our employees see the opportunities going both ways. It's not just us pushing people into their organization, but that we create opportunities for people in their organization to come back and, and work with us. Stacy Schlenk, who is our uh, talent acquisition guru. She is responsible for all of the talent we bring into the organization. I think you'll see as we talk through this uh, story today that talent acquisition is a critically important role for us, as is talent development. And Stacy's one of two new hires we've put into those roles. Don Roberts uh, is. Um, it deserves recognition for a variety of different reasons. One, one is he's a, he's a great uh, alumnus of Ernst & Young, University of Missouri. Um, he, is, uh, he attended a TEP program. Uh, but m more important than all of those, uh, his biggest accomplishment is putting up with me for 16 years, which I think he just completed uh, like a, two or three weeks ago. Adam Silver and Spencer Bush uh, both interned for us last summer. Thank you guys for having us. And I would like, uh, and she's embarrassed by this, but I would like to introduce the first ever recipient of the HBM uh, Holdings Scholarship, uh, Catherine Breer. Thank you. <clears throat> when uh, Elizabeth was working with us to give us some guidance on what to do for today, she sent us a link uh, to some other speeches, including one from my good friend Bob Hugan, who's CEO of Celgene. And it's probably not smart for me to call uh, a former Marine uh, misinformed. But in the beginning of, of Bob's talk, he said that he thinks he's the luckiest person in the world. And I disagree with him, because I think I am. I've been blessed with an amazing number of fortunate developments, had a great number of mentors along the way, some of whom are in this room, uh, and all of them have played a vital role 
in whatever I've done. I've also been surrounded by phenomenal uh, team members, co-workers that have had as much, if not more, of a role in our success than I could ever have. So uh, I think Bob's wrong. I think I got the lucky draw. So here we go. We're going to uh, wander around today at a couple of topics. We're going to start off talking about, and these are my opinions, those factors that will contribute to your leadership style. All of us have one now. Uh, I would suspect for most of you, your leadership style is not yet fully formed. And so there are going to be things that will contribute to that going forward. And I want to talk about the components that uh, contribute to that. And those would be the environment you grew up in, what was the culture, your family life, those sorts of things that influenced you at a young age. What's the, who are the people you've been in touch with? And then what experiences have you had that have formed your, um, uh, your style? We'll then talk a little bit about Mississippi Lime and HBM in that transition. And then finally, at the end, uh, I'll give you some perspective on uh, leadership. So we're going to start talking about my environment. What were the things that influenced me when I uh, was, was growing up that had a big impact on my style? Uh, I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, all, all of my grandparents were immigrants from Italy. They all immigrated as adults. And... Um, you know, I would say by most people's definition, I grew up in what would be called uh, the lower middle class of, of, of Philadelphia. Uh, we were all taught to begin working at a very young age. I had my first job at the age of 14. Uh, my sister and brothers did the same thing. My parents did it when they were growing up. Every, not unusual, every male in my family served in World War II in different branches of the service. Not at all unusual, uh, but pretty darn important. My dad was a high school dropout. He dropped out to join um, the Army. Uh, my uncle, who was the guy in the picture, um, the previous picture, actually enlisted in the Navy illegally. He was too young to join the Navy, but lied about his age to get in. Uh, my mom did finish high school, worked in a variety of clerical jobs until kids came along. I had two uncles that attended college as part of the GI Bill um, after World War II. My older sister graduated high school, went right to work, started going to college at night, completed her degree about 25 years later. She took a break to have kids um, and then eventually went back and did eventually uh, get a degree. And then, again, I don't think so unusual for my generation, maybe a little bit less unusual today. Mo I was raised a lot by my grandmother. You know, my parents were working, doing other things, so I actually spent a lot of time uh, growing up, spending time with uh, my grandmother. I attended uh, a parochial elementary school. Um, I was identified as maybe having some... Um, some strengths academically, and so I was offered a scholarship to attend a private school starting in the eighth grade, which I attended. Um, I put myself through both a private university, you know, Franklin and Marshall College that somebody mentioned earlier. Yeah, Adam did, I guess, in the introduction. And then also put myself through Darden. So, you know, it's um, probably a lot similar. There's probably a lot of similarities to a number of you in the room that have done that same thing. Um, so, so for me, 
what did I take away from that? I mean, my, my upbringing created an incredibly strong work ethic that I think I still have today. But the other thing it did for me, and, and I've, I've learned from people that this is not unusual, I have a variety of insecurities about who I am and why I am where I am that create this edge, this passion to succeed and do well. But sometimes that edge is counterproductive. You know, there's a feeling uh, in many situations that I have that I cannot explain, but I frequently think I don't deserve what happened to me. If I get appointed to a, the board of trustees, I wonder, why the hell did they do that? If I get the opportunity to chair an organization, I frequently sit back and say, why did that happen? It is apparently very common for people to have that feeling, and those of us that, and, and a lot of people don't share it. So I think it's important for you to get comfortable that sometimes in life, good things are going to happen to you, and don't worry about whether you deserve it or not. Just embrace it. So let's talk about people. Folks at a very early age start influencing you. I started working at 14. I started out as a caddy at Philadelphia Cricket Club. I didn't know what a golf club was. I'm not talking about the, the institution. I'm talking about the thing you hold in your hand. I had no idea what it was. The caddy master could have cared less whether I got to do a loop or not. And so that job lasted about a month. And it told me an important lesson about somebody caring about helping you do a good job. And that was a negative experience for me at the age of 14 that I've taken with me and used uh, since then. I then, after I quit that job, I went to work for, at a restaurant. Al Baffa was the owner of that restaurant. He had a totally different attitude, and I felt very competent to do what I uh, needed to do. And then from there, I actually went to work at a men's clothing store. Milton Steinberg was the owner of that. He taught me an awful lot about customer service and sales and how to do a good job, which was really important for me. Uh, in the early stages of my life, uh, I did a lot of entertaining. Um, Hugh Galt was the glee club director and the musical director of Franklin Marshall College. He was a tremendous influence on my life. Uh, I actually drove the very first Mercedes-Benz in my life when I was driving him back from an event we were at. It was really pretty cool. I have one now. Um, <laughs> but as, as a 19-year-old kid, it was really cool to drive a Mercedes sports car. Uh, Keith Spaulding was the president of Franklin Marshall College, and I did a lot of extracurricular things. I had a lot of leadership positions, and I got to know Keith really well. And for an 18 or 19-year-old kid to be able to interact with the president of the college and have this guy really genuinely care about what I thought and what I did was really quite remarkable, and Keith, Keith was a great friend of mine and a great influence on my life. At Darden, uh, Jack Lang was a Franklin and Marshall graduate, happened to live in Charlottesville at the time, and he was a great influence uh, for me. Uh, the most important relationship I left Darden with is uh, with John Colley, who's sitting in, in the back of the room. John and I have known each other for 40 years. Um, he saw something in me that I did not see in myself. He's been a tremendous resource and mentor for me along the way, and John, thank you for having the faith and confidence in me and guiding me along the way. The other guy I should mention at Darden, we had a longtime dean of admissions, John Snook, who, who ran the admissions department at Darden for a really long time. And I really, to this day, don't know how I fooled him in my interview. 
but uh, I, I obviously was successful at doing that. This is a list of everybody I have ever worked for, all of them at FMC. And there are some great people on that list, some guys that taught me invaluable lessons about leadership, about business, about family. And there are some really lousy people on that list. And I learned a lot from them, too. And so an important issue for you to think about as you're embarking on your career is if you have a bad boss, it's still a learning opportunity. Don't get frustrated, but take away from that those things that you'll never do when you're a leader. Peers and friends. This is, uh, I separated these kind of from, by chronology. The second group of people, Kim Foster, Bob McKee, Pat Robinson, and Terry Loudon, that is my study group. We still, we had this discussion at lunch. Uh, we still stay in touch. Every one of them was remarkably successful in their careers. Uh, and several of them are still very, very involved at Darden. It's a great group of people. So, that, so again, a takeaway is you're forming some relationships here that if you nurture them will last you a lifetime. Alan Lowe, Milton Steele, and the rest of the list uh, through Linda Myrick are people I worked with um, in every function. Um, as I've talked to people, I've, I was blessed at FMC to always have a tremendous human resource person working with me. And, and, and from an influence standpoint, there's a little bit of echo right there. I got to stay away from that spot. Um, from an influence standpoint, seeing how someone can do a job well early in your career just makes a huge impact on how you think about life going forward. Rick Swoboda, I was interviewing for a job at FMC. If you wanted to be a general manager, you had to eventually, you had to eventually do a marketing director role uh, first. And I was up for a marketing director role, and it was a business I knew well, and Rick was the HR manager, and I had an interview scheduled with him. And uh, he said, well, let's meet in the lobby. I said, okay, we met in the lobby and we took a two and a half hour walk around downtown Philadelphia and just talked. And it was a phenomenal experience for me because I learned that, hey, you know what? You can learn about people in a variety of different ways. You don't just have to ask them 20 questions about what they've done and, uh, and uh, how they think and what decisions they've made. The last group of people are folks uh, that have made a big impact on me in St. Louis. Uh, Larry Keyes headed the search committee that uh, hired me. Larry was the former COO of Emerson Electric. And quite frankly, I took the job at FMC because of the opportunity to work with Larry. And he was a very, very dear friend. One of the other big impacts in my life, and I sincerely hope none of you ever have this impact, is when people die working for you. These, these five people all died under my responsibility. One at FMC, Fort Mississippi Line. And I remember these guys often. And we work very hard in our organization on safety, and I'll show you our safety performance record. But there's nothing that you learn inside these four walls that prepare you for dealing with the death of somebody that is your responsibility, except for those of you who have served 
And even then, I, don't, I suspect that you're not prepared all that well for when that happens. But it's had an indelible impact on me. It, it makes us very passionate about safety. It's personal for me, and, uh, and it's something we, we keep in mind. The first three folks on this list, Monk, Emily, and Angie, are folks who were in our organization and used our tuition reimbursement process, our tuition reimbursement form, to go on and do bigger and better things. Monk was an hourly employee at our plant, had a lifelong dream of coaching softball, knew he had to become a teacher to do that. So he went and got his degree, became a teacher, coaches the women's softball team at St. Genevieve High School, took him to state championship a second year there. And I'm as proud of Monk doing that for the community of St. Genevieve as if he had stayed for us. Orv Kimbrough is uh, the president of the United Way of St. Louis. Orv grew up in the foster care system, which in most locations is a really crappy way to get raised. And again, early in his life, someone believed in Orv and taught him to believe in himself. And Orv is one of the most dynamic, effective leaders I've ever had the opportunity to work with. And he's 39 years old, which scares the heck out of me, what he's capable of. Dan Harbo is the chair of the Ronald McDonald House, somebody that is a very dear friend, and taught me about believing passionately about the services you're providing to, to people. Dave Peacock, uh, for those of you who know a little bit about the AB InBev takeover, Dave Peacock is the guy that came in and held the organization together when the Bush family kind of said, okay, we're done, you guys have it. And Dave went on to become president of, uh, of AB. He is now intimately involved in keeping the St. Louis Rams in St. Louis. Great civic leader. My family's obviously a very, very big part of who I am and what keeps me going. I've got a partner who supports me uh, unquestioningly but is never afraid to tell me when I'm wrong. And I've got two kids who have helped me learn about leadership in different ways and helped me learn how to adjust my style to deal with the young folks that we have today. So you can learn from everybody. It doesn't have to be older people that you learn from. So that's the people side. Experiences, I'll flip through this really fast. This is uh, a list of jobs I held at FMC and what I took away from each of those jobs. You can see that most of my career was spent either in the strategy or marketing side. Um, I did have a little bit of a stint uh, coming up on uh, manufacturing, where I really began to understand the importance of safety. Uh, I managed the, the, the sales and distribution process for all of FMC's chemical businesses and then ended up as a GM of pharmaceuticals, which is the spot I had before I came to Mississippi Lime. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, the Mississippi Lime story in a second. Uh, when Carlos and Chris were helping me pull this together, they asked what FOM was, and that's focus on what matters. Uh, one of the things that is really easy for any of us to do is to get distracted and focus on things that are trivial. I do it every day. I, at the end of every day, I sit down and say, what did I do today that was really worthless? And the list is awfully long. So I think focusing on the stuff that's important is something that separates uh, those who get by in life and those who succeed. So that's the first part. Now I want to tell you a little bit about the Mississippi Lime story. 
So we talked about Larry Keyes a little earlier. In, in, in the mid-90s, the family that was running Mississippi Lime at the time decided to um, sell a business they had bought uh, because it was a bad decision. So they hired Larry, who was the uh, retired president and CEO of Emerson Electric, uh, to help sell the business. After he did that, they asked him to think about where the company was going and uh, asked him to review the, the strategy that the company was following. And I still have his memo. Uh, it was unkind because the strategy was not well thought out. And uh, he was very clear to the, to, the, to the family that things needed to change in the organization. He suggested that the board form an advisory board made up of outside business leaders. It included Larry, a guy by the name of Bob Lefton, who was uh, a psychologist that worked with family businesses, and then Bob Quinnen, who was the retired CEO of, uh, of Peabody Cold. Uh, as far as I can tell, and I wasn't there, this all happened in early 1998. Um, at their second meeting, they convinced the family to hire an outside CEO, and they concluded uh, in December of 1998, and I joined in 1999. One of the things that uh, happens in a lot of businesses is you don't look at data the right way. You know, you, you, ha you have the data in front of you, but maybe you didn't put it together in the right way. So one of the things I did early on in my tenure was kind of take a bunch of old data and put it together in a different way than than the, the board had seen it before. And, and so what I found was in the decade preceding me was that revenue was essentially flat. And actually what's behind this revenue line is declining volume and abusive price increases. Our sales per employee was exactly flat. And the returns of the business were uh, clearly going in clearly going in the wrong direction. That anomaly below the line was the write-off of the acquisition that Larry sold. So that was um, not what I thought I bought into when I came to Mississippi Lime. <laughs> that was not the spec they had written for the job. It was not my skill set. It was not what I felt I was capable of, of, uh, of dealing with. So we clearly identified that there were a lot of actions that needed to get taken. In mid-1999, um, Bruce Baggio, who is our soon-to-retire Chief Human Resource Officer, and I presented uh, something called Project Phoenix to the board. And those of you who are mythology buffs know the significance of that, and those of you who don't, go look it up on Google. After the presentation, please. Um, but we presented a plan to the board to restore Mississippi Lime to the position it had been in, with that position being both financially and, and strategically and getting in a better position. We were, as weak as we were financially, we were even in a worse strategic position. Part of that was bringing in a new leadership team and laying out plans to eliminate a lot of the deficiencies from our competitive position. And Don was part of, Don, Don and Bill Ayers, who now runs Mississippi Lime, were the two first hires we had. We basically doubled the invested capital base of the company in a very short period of time because we were so far behind in technology and costs 
that we needed to go from 1980s technology to 2000 technology, not just in manufacturing, by the way, but manufacturing was where it had the most impact. We also simultaneously, and Bill Ayers did this, repositioned ourselves in the market. Um, there is a lot of value you can create in a business by firing the wrong customers. And that's exactly what we did. We, had, we looked at our customer base and we said, these are the guys we want to invest in and these guys are worthless. And we let all the worthless customers go to our competitors and we kept all the good ones. And it was a selective choice and it paid off several times in the ensuing uh, 15 years. We found we had some uh, deficiencies in our capabilities that we couldn't fix quickly with a direct investment but we found an acquisition target that gave us a temporary reprieve that allowed us the time to build the capabilities to close that gap. And it was still one of the coolest acquisitions we ever did. We actually leased the property from the current owner, so at the end of the lease we closed up, they destroyed the plant, and it got us uh, about a two and a half year window to um, complete a technology development effort to, to, to close that gap ourselves. And we also put a very big, strong focus on talent acquisition, but more importantly, tried to change the culture of the organization, which had been a very hierarchical, tops-down driven organization to one that was more empowered, more, more facile, uh, and more nimble. So how did we do? The first thing we talk about in every meeting is safety. And uh, there are statistics in the safety community called incident rates. For any of you in manufacturing, you know what it is. For those of you not in manufacturing, it's the number of injuries per 200,000 man hours, or roughly per 100 people per year. So you can see the year I joined, we were well up above uh, 12. We had over 1,000 employees, so that's a lot of injuries. Uh, we cut it in half in a year, cut it in half again in the following year, and we've been bouncing down uh, in, in the range of one to one and a half uh, for most of the last decade. Since, uh, since Don and, and, and I have been at Mississippi Lime, we've worked over a million hours without a lost time accident three times. Uh, we've won the Sentinels of Safety Award, uh, which is an award given by uh, MSHA. Uh, three consecutive years, and no one's ever won it three consecutive years. So despite all that hard work, as I said earlier, there's, you, you still have to remain diligent. But safety is something we're very proud of. As we look at potential acquisitions, it's something we focus on and make sure that they've got the fundamentals there. And in most cases, we find we can take what they're already doing well and make it better. So the light blue lines uh, are the revenue bars you saw from the prior slide, um, and from 1999 on, you can see with the exception of 2008, which I think most of us get a pass on, uh, we, had, uh, we had uninterrupted growth. What did we do right in making those changes happen? We talked about focus before. We identified what was important and we, we prioritized them. We had both short and long-term things we had to make happen. We made sure our foundation was stable first, and then we uh, went on uh, working on strategy and, and, and growth second. And we tried really hard to avoid distractions, which I, it really is a constant challenge. Uh, 
we put a team in place that was results oriented. The management team that worked together intact for about 11 years was one of the best management teams I've ever worked with, and we were all pretty competitive, results-oriented folks, but, could able, but were able to work well together. And we created that same model below us in the organization. We did a lot of listening to both employees and customers, and I was shocked when I would talk to people, you know, as I was formulating my thinking around what do we need to change, all of our employees knew what had to be changed. All of our customers knew what we were doing wrong. Nobody was listening to them. So it wasn't rocket science. It was just listening to what they said and then figuring out how to successfully deal with the changes they were suggesting. Communicates in all caps because it's really important. Uh, we kept our board informed along the way. We were making some radical changes uh, to an organization that the family and board had run for almost 100 years. And a lot of the changes we were making were the exact opposite of decisions they had made when they were in charge. And so communicating with them, bringing them along the way, was really critical to making sure they stayed on board. We kept our employees updated. When we were investing in new technologies, we knew that that would eventually result in layoffs. And we advised our employees of our strategy and our investment three years before they would be implemented, taking some risk that people would leave early. The reality is we were able to grow the business so quickly that we actually never wound up laying off anybody. But that risk was out there. We didn't want people to be uninformed or misinformed about what we were doing and why we were doing it. And so we communicated with them early and often, and um, that, that gained us a tremendous amount of of uh, credibility. And the last part is to be honest. We never sugarcoated anything that was bad, and we never overstated anything that was good. We, we were pretty straight with our employees. Talked about culture change. And the analogy I like to use when I'm talking about the change process um, we used in Mississippi Lime is to talk about how you would boil a frog. And for those of you who don't know the, the, the analogy, if you have a pot of boiling water and throw a frog in it, the frog will leap out. If you put the frog in cold water and turn the temperature up slowly, the frog will boil. And that's what we had to do, is we had to change the culture, but we had to change it at a measured pace that wouldn't so shock the organization that it risked things going awry. We set pretty high standards and held people accountable. We had to put training in place to help each of our employees make the transition. A lot of our first-line supervisors were used to being cops. We needed them now to become coaches. They weren't going to do that because we waved our hands at them. We had to give them the tools and skills. And some people didn't make it, but most of them did. The last thing on this, uh, this particular bullet is around how you react when risks fail. We were trying to change the aggressiveness of an organization to try new and different things. They don't all work. When they fail, how you react will greatly influence how people act the next time they, you ask them to take a risk. And so we have a great culture in which we talk about our mistakes openly and honestly without any punitive action. It's all about what did we learn and then how do we institutionalize that learning. We understand what our limitations are and every once in a while we ignore them and say press on anyway. 
and we made good use of outside resources. What did we do wrong? There were two things we did wrong. One is we grossly underestimated our need for talent. We were operating uh, awfully thinly for a very long time, much longer than we should have. And it, particularly in the technology area, we took some unnecessary risks. So what are we doing now? In 2011, we were looking at the Mississippi Line business, and we identified some systemic risks to the business that we couldn't manage or influence. One was around environmental regulation uh, related to carbon emissions, and the other was the offshoring of a lot of our customers' manufacturing overseas. But we had done a great job of generating cash flow, but with a slow growth industry, there were really limitations to what uh, we could intelligently invest back in the Lime business. We also identified that we had a big talent issue, uh, both in terms of impending retirements of leaders in our organization over the next five years, and a limitation in our bench strength uh, across the board. So that led to the creation of HBM Holdings Company, which is a, basically a risk management strategy. We're trying to diversify into other uh, key higher growth markets than Lyme. Uh, we're trying to diversify our risk. We focus on business models we understand. And most importantly, we want to be able to add value to the company we buy. We don't just want them to operate the way they've always operated. We want to be able to bring management resources, cash, strategic thinking to the way they run that business to help them uh, grow faster than they could on their own. We've got a great team. Um, to ex on the talent side, we've aggressively started investing. That's the same time we started recruiting here and at other schools. The team we bring in executes our M&A strategy, but they also uh, provide great support to our portfolio companies and are the pipeline for management talent going forward. This is our current portfolio. You can go to the website and read all that. I'm not going to dwell on it uh, any further, but we've got four portfolio companies, got a bunch of things in play right now. So now let me talk a bit about um, my personal belief, things I've learned for what they're worth around effective leadership. And I break them into three, uh, two, two buckets, and then the third bucket is something I'm going to talk about uh, separately. The first one is around personal traits. It is really, really important that you know who you are. Know what you're good at, know what you're not good at, know what your quirks and idiosyncrasies are. And if you're not sure, Ask your spouse, they'll tell you. Um, but people who are effective leaders usually have a very, very refined understanding of who they are. I know what all my idiosyncrasies are, and I tell people what my, because I want them to understand that if I do something, it isn't because I'm mad or pissed off or happy, it's just kind of the way I do things. And then complement your weaknesses with people around you that have a strength in that area. Stamina uh, is, is pretty important. When you're the leader of an organization, you always have to be on. You have to be on when other people are asleep. You have to be on when other people are dozing off. You have to be on when you've done your 10th event of the day. Any of you who want to see an example of stamina, look at Bob Bruner and what he's done over the last 10 years and how he took this organization on his shoulders and, and uh, 
and made it great again. And Bob's stamina still blows me away. The way he traveled, the way he articulated the Darden message around the world was really quite impressive. Integrity. I define integrity as what you do when no one's looking. And it is important that you live that integrity all the time and make sure people uh, see that you're living your values. Intellectual curiosity. I, I, don't, I hope I never stop learning. I try and learn something new and different all the time. It's one of the things that's fun about what we're doing now at HBM Holdings. Communication skills. Uh, it's great to be able to talk. It is way more important that you can listen well and be able to hear what people are telling you. Um, and so being able to communicate effectively, listening to other people's ideas, and being able to communicate your ideas back is pretty important. I don't know that this is a continuum, but the lines between self-confidence, arrogance, and hubris sometimes are pretty thin. And you want to be on the right side of that line. Uh, there are some important examples of that in the world where people who are just so arrogant that they're not listening to the people around them. I teach a case in a leadership class at a couple of schools in St. Louis on Navistar, which is one of the customers of our TrueFlex business. And it's something we learned uh, when we were doing due diligence on the acquisition about how Navistar, because of the arrogance of Dan Eustian, who was the CEO at the time, uh, nearly killed an iconic company in the United States. And it's still not clear that they're going to survive. But because he had an idea and, was, and refused to engage the organization in pressure testing his idea, refused to listen to anyone else's negative thoughts about going a different direction, Navistar nearly went bankrupt and may still yet go bankrupt. Cultural parameters. Everybody says you should have an equal commitment to your stakeholders, and I say that's baloney. If you are not satisfying the needs of your shareholders, you don't get to care for the other stakeholders. We get to do the things we do philanthropically. We get to do the things we do in leadership development. We get to do all the things we do that are cool because we're generating great returns for our shareholders. So that's got to be your paramount commitment. And then you can have a very, very strong commitment to your employees, to your community, to society. But you've got to do the first one first. You have to have a passion for winning. Many big companies, FMC was a classic example of this, one of the biggest lessons I took away from FMC. FMC played not to lose. And there's a difference between playing not to lose and playing to win. And, and, and we have instilled a culture within Mississippi Lime and HBM Holdings around winning. You have to have a passion for developing people. None of you guys are going to come work for us if you don't think we care about your development. And it can't be lip service. It's got to be ingrained in everything we do and everything you see when you come visit us. And I think we do have a passion for developing people. Uh, and I think it's why we attract such great people to come work for us. You have to believe that teams trump individuals. Any organization that is dependent upon the intellectual capacity of an individual will fail. Teams are always going to do a better job. Organizational clarity. How well does the organization understand what you want to do? We have a great example of that 
um, today. It's called Volkswagen. Martin Winkercorn said, I want to be the biggest auto producer in the world. He didn't say, I want to be the biggest auto producer in the world while still complying with every rule and working within the cultural frameworks and ethical guidelines of Volkswagen. And so the engineering department likely said, he wants to be big, we got to figure out how to, how to do it. And you know, the jury is still out on who did what to whom. But clearly, the organization took the edict to become the biggest auto producer in the world, regardless of what it meant for their other cultural values. And so there's a great lesson there around making sure the organization knows what you're really telling them to do. The last thing up there is a commitment to making the world a better place. Um, some people call that uh, civic engagement. Some people call that philanthropy. But there are a lot of different ways you can make the world a better place. Peter Drucker, who is one of the management gurus of my generation, was being interviewed in the late 80s <clears throat> when MBAs were starting to really blow up the, really the population of uh, po the popularity of MBAs was getting quite strong, and a lot of MBAs were starting to go to Wall Street. And, and Peter Drucker was asked about that trend, and he said, you know, every business school in the United States should require, before they issue a degree, for every one of their students to attend the funeral of a successful CEO and listen to the eulogy. Because the eulogy is not going to talk about what the earnings per share were. They're not going to talk about what the growth of the company was. They're going to talk about what that individual did for society. And I think you all need to think about that as you're thinking about going forward. You can make both large and small contributions uh, to do that. In the last decade, we've given out $3 million in our community. That's not a lot relative to an Emerson Electric or an Express Scripts, but it's a lot for us. Sixty children of our employees are attending colleges because of scholarships we gave them. Last weekend, 54 of us participated in Cycle uh, Pedal the Cause in St. Louis, which is a fundraising event for cancer research. And we currently sit at number 12 in corporate fundraising before we've matched what our employees have raised. And we're probably about the 200 or 300th largest uh, employer in St. Louis in terms of employees there. But our employees wanted to make a difference. Don's wife, Beth, serves as a mentor for several young African-American women in a charter school in downtown St. Louis. So there's no limit on how you can impact the world. And I'm going to do one uh, unabashed um, advertisement for Darden Philanthropy. Every one of you here is given the opportunity to get a degree from a great institution because you're standing on the shoulders of those who went before you. The cost of running this place is nearly three times the tuition revenue we bring in. 
So the fact that alumni have donated funds to this school to support the infrastructure, to support faculty salaries, to support the great things this university does is really important. So when you leave here, I want all of you to participate in the annual fund. And when you are rich and successful, I want you to give big gifts back to the school. So I think we're now ready for questions. Hello. Thank you very much for this uh, wonderful presentation. I heard in the beginning you said your leadership is formed. Do you mean that at some point your leadership doesn't transform, doesn't change, it's formed at one point and say constant or something that is ever evolving? No, I think that um, the, the point there is our, there are a lot of influences that create our leadership style. Some of it we can't change. You know, the culture we were brought up in, what our family life was like, our early education, a lot of that's going to be part of your style. But, but beyond that, your experiences and the people you get to interact with and how you choose to learn, how you choose to pick traits and characteristics from other people. Uh, my leadership style is still evolving and it needs to evolve. Don will tell you that. Yep, Felipe. Well, hold on a sec. I think they want to get you the microphone. I know. But this will be on YouTube. Okay. <laughs> so what, are, what was the hardest business decision you made so far? Um, I think any time you are faced with having to um, break your relationship with an employee, also known as firing, um, it's tough. I mean, even if the person isn't performing well, you know you are making uh, a meaningful change to that person's life. And so uh, while it's always good for the organization in the end, uh, it's still pretty doggone painful. Um, we have faced uh, situations where we were closing plant sites and putting multiple people out of work. I think we've, in general, tried to act very humanely when we've done those things. I think we try and act pretty humanely when uh, we have to terminate somebody. But I think those are, those are just tough, tough decisions. I would say the toughest thing I've ever had to do was go meet with the spouse of someone who died working for us. That wasn't a decision, but it was pretty, pretty painful. Can hear a pin drop in here. <laughs> yeah, thank you for coming today and uh, for for the insight uh, provided is very valuable. Um, this topic of self of self reflection or self awareness, you seem like a very reflective individual. So I have two questions. Um, <laughs> you don't know me very well. <laughs> yeah. So so one, um, how much of how much of the I guess examples or how many of the examples that you actually provided were after the fact self reflection, and then on a practical level. What does this process of self-reflection look like for you? That's a great question. I, um, I would say uh, I'm much more self-reflective today than I was 20 
years ago, even 10 years ago. I think part of that comes with uh, maturity. Um, frequently, the self-reflective uh, experiences I had earlier in my year, earlier in my career, were imposed on me by somebody else. You go off to this workshop and learn about leadership, or take this personality test, and this psychologist will now help you uh, soften your hard edges. Um, but I do think that uh, you begin to absorb more about other people, and you know the problem for for many of us is we're so busy doing the tactical day-to-day -day living, that we don't create those opportunities to sit back and reflect on what we've learned. And it, it's, it's an important part for all of us to do. And you know, I know that I don't do it nearly as much as I need to, but I try and create opportunities where I can. I'm working with a coach um, who's helping me. She's gathering feedback from the people that I work with and providing me feedback from that. Uh, and, and continuing to help me refine my style. Yep. You got the mic, so you must be next. <laughs> <laughs> That's me. Um, you mentioned firing the wrong customers. Um, that seems counterintuitive. Can you go into a little more detail? On yeah, what, that means? what I should have said was firing bad customers, not the wrong customers. Okay. We didn't fire the wrong customers. We fired bad customers. You know, people who had low growth prospect paid you in 90 days instead of 30 days. You know, nickel and dime you on every every item on the invoice, and they just were much more work than they were work. Always called last minute for an emergency shipment. Those guys. I, I shouldn't have said wrong. I should have said bad. But a lot of, there are a lot of organizations. I would say most organizations believe that every customer is important, and I disagree with that completely. We did some analysis at FMC um, in which we did a uh, a profit chart on our customers. So we rank ordered our customers. Uh, based on their profit contribution. And obviously, it's not a scientific analysis, and it doesn't meet GAP. Sorry. Um, but, it, but it was a great exercise for us to go through. And we went through all those intangible things, like their payment terms and emergency shipments and, and all the little nickel and dime things. How much tech support do they need? And not surprisingly, the graph peaked and then started down. So that last section of customers, we were actually losing value on. And those are the guys you want to get rid of. And you probably want to get rid of some of those in the middle. When we're looking at capacity expenses, we had this conversation six months ago or so. When we're looking at capacity expenses, we challenge the organization to say, do we want to expand capacity or do you want to get rid of some customers? If we need more production capacity, should we get rid of some low margin customers so that you can fulfill this growth opportunity? So it's, a, it's an important question to ask yourself, and I think most organizations don't think that way at all. Sorry. Hey. Hey, um, so clearly one of the struggles we have as students um, coming out of school is the first job that we get out of school is more technically uh, challenging than maybe it is leadership-wise, and so that leads many of us to focus more on the technical classes and less so on those LOOB classes. Um, so I guess my, I, I would like to hear your insight on how when we join our organizations, you know, Simon who joined just a couple months ago, you know, how we can make impacts in the first two to three years when we are in those more technically challenging roles and the less leadership roles. Wow. Um, first off, um, 
You know, I think as a lot of college graduates are finding, um, you, better be, you better be building skills that somebody wants to pay you for. And, you know, I think one of the things that's wrong with our education system today, including at this fine institution, is there's been such a proliferation of areas of study that we push students to study things that have no employment prospects. So the reality is you got to build some skills that somebody's going to want to pay you for. Uh, we were talking at lunch, I think, today about this, this issue, and I think most, no disrespect to the faculty in the room, but most of what you're learning here from a technical skill standpoint, you probably won't use after two or three years out of here. You're going to be learning a completely different set of skills. One of the things that um, was a lesson that I glossed over when I was going through the FMC piece, uh, in, in, in one of the assignments uh, I had, I learned that uh, taking on dirty jobs is a great way to get good visibility. And, and think about it this way, you know, if you go in, so FMC's pharmaceutical business was a well-run, highly profitable business. I went in as general manager. There was almost nothing I could do to make an impact. You go into a business that's cruddy and dirty, or you have a project that's crappy that nobody else wants to do, you have a much greater opportunity to make an impact that other people will notice. So I encourage people to sign up for the job nobody else wants to do. Sign up for the project nobody else thinks is sexy. Uh, because that's the, you have a much greater chance, that's a probabilistic thing, you know, is you have a much greater chance of doing something other people will notice than if you're, you're, you're part of something that's already successful. So don't shy away from doing things that look nasty from the outside. I'm really excited that none of the HBM folks are asking questions. Thank you for make me nervous. coming and very straightforward discussion about what's important for the leadership. I liked very much uh, your mentioning of boiling the frog. And can you describe a little bit uh, like the situation? Because as far as I understand, uh, there are few of you as f who were like turning the heat under the organization part. And how you managed to keep aligned? Because the second point was... Uh, setting ambitious goals and making people accountable to that. And it's kind of contradictory to boiling the frog. How do you manage to keep these two things aligned? Well, I hope it was more than blind dumb luck, but it could have been. Um, you know, we knew that the organization had some deficiencies around decision making, uh, around workload. I mean, you know, people would leave at 4.30 and there was work to be done. Uh, the capacity we had to get projects done was way below what we needed to be successful. And so over time, we just kept setting tougher and tougher standards, tougher and tougher goals. We didn't go all the way, we knew where we wanted to end up, but we did not get there in one step, we got there in measured steps. And I think that one of the hardest things to do as a leadership team is exactly the dilemma you're posing, which is how fast do you ratchet that temperature up because you want to push the organization without breaking the organization. And you just have to be in tune with what's going on. You have to listen to people. You have to provide the support and training for them to learn the new skills. You got to have them give them time to perfect and practice those skills. But I would say it's much more art than science. 
Felipe has another question. So you talk a lot about being able to prioritize. So what are the personal tools that you use to avoid distractions? I didn't say I was good at that. <laughs> I said a good, effective leader should be good at that. Uh, I get distracted really easily, really easily. Um, you know, I think part of the challenge today compared to 20 years ago is the technology keeps us plugged in all the time. It's really easy to say, oh, I just got an email or I just got a text. And, and, and uh, you know, turning off your computer or turning off your computer screen so you can't see the email that's coming in, not answering your phone. You know, one of the things I don't do very often is close my door because I think that's bad, but occasionally you got to close your door to get some stuff done. Uh, and I find that I've worked more on the important priority stuff in off hours early in the morning or later in the evening than I can during the workday. But I get easily distracted. I don't know that it's ADD, but it's probably close. I think we have time for one more. So you talk... Um, <clears throat> I'll just say that you, as being on the top, you're in kind of an isolated position. Like that leadership is somewhat isolating. Um, and the buck stops with you. And so you've, it sounds like, created a phenomenal team around you. Um, but when you talk kind of about some of the personal and cultural traits that it takes to be an effective leader, so for instance, stamina, or for instance, um, a passion for winning and not just trying to lose, um, what sort of infrastructures and or people have you kind of put in place to kind of hold you accountable to where you don't burn yourself out or to where you don't make a, an, a too aggressive decision? Like what's, what's kind of the accountability structure that you've created for yourself to make you an effective leader? Well, I think <clears throat> in general, um, uh, you know, I work really hard to make sure that people are comfortable telling me when they think I'm wrong or when they think I'm misguided. And, and I'm not naive enough to think they do that every time they think that I'm wrong or misguided. Um, but I think people are pretty comfortable, some more than others. At, um, you know, they may not do it in a public setting, but they may come in later and say, hey, you know, I really am not sure we should be doing this. And I think we've created an environment where they feel safe doing that. Uh, but I also know when we've made a mistake, and I spend a lot of time, we were talking about reflection. I mean, one of the things I reflect upon often is when things don't go the way we expected them to go, what role did I play in that? Was I arrogant? Did I think I knew the answer and ignored the advice of other people around me? So I spent a lot of time playing that back to understand what role I could have played in a mistake or something that failed to achieve what it could have achieved. Um, we're all pretty good at telling each other what we think um, in, a, in a nice way most of the time. Um, you, you probably should ask that question to the guys that work around me because they probably can give you a better answer than I can. I'd like to thank Mike very much for coming. <coughs> uh, we have a gift for you. Let me, sorry, <laughs> left it around here. <laughs> um, but uh, thank you very much, and let's all give Mike a big round of applause. Thank you. Thank you.